Good morning. It's good to see you all here on this unusually not snowing February winter Sunday. I feel like I'm giving a weather report every Sunday, but I'm just glad that you're here. I'm glad that the roads are clear and we can rejoice in that. Even if you like me, you still love to see snow. I've got a snow-covered glass and my screensaver is all pictures of snow. So if you don't like snow, don't come look at my screensaver. I'm Pastor Mark, and if you haven't met me yet, uh, make sure you stop and get a chance to talk to me after the service. Those that are you that are with us online, I'm glad to have you with us as well. I hope you're following along with the service, and I hope to see you in person someday, those of you that are able to. So as a typical 50-something-year-old white American male, what do you think I like? American history. That's just a thing, right? We're, we're full of useless trivia. Um, if you have any questions about planes or ships or submarines or all those kind of things, you can ask somebody that looks like me and will probably be able to answer some of those questions. In particular, I'm in awe of what we've called the greatest generation, the men and women who sacrificed so much in World War II to liberate people from the evils of Nazism in Europe and in Africa. And then, with Japan's goal of bringing death and destruction to all enemies of the empire, these men and women answered the call and were willing to sacrifice everything. My father and my uncle were both part of that generation, so that's my connection to them. It was just one generation away, and I'm thankful that they both returned. I've cheered through the Band of Brothers. I've cried through watching Greyhounds and the Pacific series. Now I'm watching a new one called Masters of the Air. Has anybody seen that yet? There's a picture from that. These are stories, each one of these movies, about real men who answered the call to fight the enemies of democracy, the enemies of freedom, the enemies of mankind. And right now I'm almost finished reading the autobiography of Robert Morgan, who if you don't know that name, The Man Who Flew the Memphis Bell. Any of you remember that movie from back in the 90s, maybe? So there were 10 positions on the B-17 flying a fortress bomber. And in case you're not like me, you're going to hear some of the trivia just because it's my lead into the message. The pilot had the first chair. Next to him was the co-pilot. There was a navigator. There was a bombardier. There was a radio operator who also had a gun. There were left and right waist gunners. There was a top gunner, a rear gunner, and then the very exposed ball turret gunner hanging beneath the bottom of the plane. This thing was bristling with weapons to protect the plane, to protect the people on board, and that's why it was called a flying fortress. Every man knew his place, and they also knew their responsibilities. Every one of them counted on each other, but they were also ready to step in and take the spot of somebody else if they were injured, sick, or something else happened. If one of them wasn't paying attention because they froze in fear or they just were daydreaming somehow, the whole crew would be exposed to danger and they could all perish. While the bombardier may be able to brag that his bombs hit the target or one of the gunners might say he took out an enemy fighter, 
It was really about the entire crew completing a mission and then getting back alive. That was their goal. Everything each crew member did was for the benefit of all, for the common good. The air crew also thoroughly depended on the ground crew. Do we have anybody that was in a ground crew position? I know we have some people who served in the military. The people who patched the plane afterwards, who fixed the engines, who made it airworthy, were absolutely necessary for the guys in the air to be able to come home at the end of the day. Without them, the guys flying in the plane didn't stand a chance. So the Memphis Belle in particular was the first B-17 to complete 25 missions, and they were rewarded with a trip home. They toured across the country, and they encouraged people that they needed to keep buying war bonds, they needed to keep working at their jobs to support the men and women overseas because this war was taking everything. So this morning's message is not about the Memphis Bell. Those of you that enjoy that, you can go home and watch this show or read one of the books. This message this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It doesn't even mention a B-17 flying fortress. But because that's what I'm reading and watching, that's in my head, and as I'm preparing for the sermon, I see these connections. Paul is giving warnings to the church about misusing spiritual gifts that were meant for the common good, not for the elevation or for the bragging rights of a single person. Gifts were given by the Holy Spirit to each individual believer. And just like our salvation, they're gifts given by grace, not by anything we've done to earn them. So we can't brag, we can't boast about them. And the church has been described by Paul by many different ways. And if B-17 bombers were around at the time, he might have described it as that too, instead of describing it as a family, as a body, as all of the other illustrations. But this is what came to mind, thinking about each of these people doing their own part, and that it was all for each other. They were all protecting, they were all caring for each other, and that's how they survive together. So those of you that are here with us maybe for the first time or haven't been here in a while, we're in a series called Living in Light of Eternity. And it's, we're going through the book of First Corinthians. We're up to chapter 12, and we have a couple more chapters to go. Paul is writing to a church, a group of believers in the city of Corinth about 2,000 years ago, and they were dealing with issues in the church. Paul had people write to him about some of these issues. Some people came to visit Paul and said, hey, we're struggling. Can you help us? So he's writing a letter back to them and saying, here's how you resolve these issues. Things like divisions within the church, fighting between members, sexual immorality, problems with marriage and singleness. And now we're up to issues regarding spiritual gifts and the need for everything to be done in love. He's going to end this book by encouraging them and us too about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead and we too, as followers of him, have that same resurrection power that we will not stay dead. We will rise to follow him into heaven. So living in light of eternity is because of that, because Paul is talking about our home in heaven that is secure. That's where we're headed. And we should live each day here on earth knowing that that's where we're going, knowing that 
we're just walking through this earth on our way to a greater place. Pilgrim's Progress talks about that celestial city. That's our destination, and we're just travelers here. Doesn't mean we don't care about the people around us. Doesn't mean we put in our all here, but we are not citizens of the earth. We're citizens of heaven, and we should act like that. Corinth was a corrupt city. It was a seaport city. It was on a, the Roman trade route, so there were all kinds of people coming and going. There were all kinds of religions mixed together. There was immorality. There was corruption. And it sounds a little bit like our culture today. Some of the same issues that they dealt with, we deal with. So as we read this book, this was written as a letter, we can see applications for us right here in Dunkirk in Chautauqua County. And we want to see particularly what it's like to gather together as a church. How should we act? Listening to the warnings of Paul, listening to the teachings, because those came directly from God. So if you want to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are Bibles in front of you. And I say this occasionally, sometimes I forget to say it, but if you're here and you don't have a Bible at home, you can take that Bible home with you. Pretend it's the Bible in the nightstand at a hotel and you can take it with you because we want you to have a Bible. But there's always going to be one in the pew to read. Let's pray before we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for joining us together this morning that we could celebrate Jesus Christ, that we could sing about our glorious God, that we could lift up the name of our everlasting God. You're faithful from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us instructions on how to live, that you've spoken to church members in the times past, but there are things that apply to us today. And I just pray, Lord, that as we read it, as we dig into your word, that um, our hearts would be soft, that our ears would be open to hear, that we would be distracted by other things, and that we would be focused on what it is that you have to say to each of us individually today. We want to understand your word, but we want to apply it to our own hearts so that we can live to follow you, to glorify your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So we're going to tackle just the first 11 verses this morning. Chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit 
who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So as we talked about in previous times together, anytime you hear something being repeated over and over again, God is trying to make a point. He's not trying, he is. God does everything that he says he's going to do. He's making a point. The question is, are we paying attention to it? By the same Spirit, by the one Spirit, over and over again. All of these things come through the Holy Spirit, but they're for the common good. So as we dig into this beginning of several chapters of talking about spiritual gifts, we're looking at the fact that they are for the common good and that they are all given by the Holy Spirit. Different gifts to different people. There's a variety of them. The beginning of the passage says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Paul's used that phrase over and over again, and it's his way of saying, I'm addressing another one of your questions. Now concerning this, let me tell you about spiritual gifts, because that's something that's come up. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you basing your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, without understanding the truth from God's word. What Paul is writing to them, this letter, has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Every word of scripture is God-breathed. There are a number of different men who are writing the words, and they all have their different styles. They have their own backgrounds. But every single word was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that means that they were writing what God told them to write. So we know because of that, we can believe it all, we can trust it all, and we need to listen to it all. We don't get to say, oh, I like what Paul had to say. Peter, he's a little angry, so I'm not going to listen to Peter. It's all from God, and we listen, need to listen to all of it. Verse 2, he says, you were led to follow mute, which means non-speaking, non-living idols, when you were still pagans without Christ. I don't want you led in the wrong direction now in regards to spiritual gifts. You followed just after the traditions that you followed then, and you were worshiping dead pieces of wood or stone or a block of gold. They didn't even talk to you, but you, you worshiped them and you obeyed them because you were led to do that. I don't want you to be led to do the wrong thing as it pertains to spiritual gifts. Their former worship of pagan idols was confusing them. And it was especially as it came to issues with the Holy Spirit. The Greeks and Romans, and remember we're in Corinth, which is part of Turkey now. It's in that region of the Middle East. But there's people traveling from all over the place. There's influences from these traders and from people who have moved from place to place. This is a metropolitan city. The Greeks and the Romans worshipped all kinds of gods and goddesses. And you may remember that from studying mythology in school. And we've talked about this a little bit before, that that was their background. They were used to having a different god or goddess to pray to, depending on what the issue was. You've heard of some of them. They show up in our superhero stories, Zeus, Jupiter, Diana, Eros, Apollo, Mercury, Neptune, and there's a version for the Romans and a version for the Greeks. They each had a different name. But basically, they had a mythical god or goddess supposedly in charge of different aspects of life. Things like hunting and harvests. 
Things like fertility or the weather or the seas. None of them liked, cared for, or even loved people. They fought amongst themselves. Those are, that's part of the mythology that these gods and goddesses were jealous of each other. They fought with each other. They were unpredictable. They were mostly just angry and annoyed at people because they're just mere mortals. And as a human being, if you believed in these mythical gods and goddesses, the best you could do was just to try to appease them, give them offerings, hoping that you'd either gain their favor in the hunt or the harvest, or that you'd get them to just leave you alone. Don't bother me. So as we've discussed back in chapter 6, many of the temples, many of the worship ceremonies around these gods and goddesses included sexual immorality. And that was one of the issues that the church was dealing with because that showed up so prevalently in their culture, they wanted to make sure as they realized, you're worshiping God. You're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing to do with sexual immorality in that worship. They also believed that their sins could be forgiven by mutilating or harming themselves. And again, that doesn't show up in any of the worship of God, even in the ancient Old Testament, where God called people to worship him. He said, don't follow after the practices of these people around you. Don't cut up your body. Don't harm yourself. And we see that when Elijah's on top of the mountain and the Priests are screaming out in pain as they cut their bodies, trying to get attention to a non-existent God. These things are all part of the background of the church in Corinth. People grew up expecting all of this to be part of their worship, and now they're starting to show up in the church. These pagan religions also promoted achieving a feeling of ecstasy, having some kind of a sensuous communion with a god or goddess to be closer to them to also draw out their approval of you, that they would listen to you because you've made this connection. So the word ecstasy, you probably think of the drug, and that's part of it, what people are experiencing in that. But the real definition, or the dictionary definition, is an overwhelming feeling of joyful excitement or great happiness. It also means an emotional or religious frenzy, a trance-like state, originally involving the experience of mystical self-transcendence, an out-of-body experience, and basically not thinking anymore, just feeling. So the people of this era, and in many pagan religions still today, did things like hypnotic dancing, fasting until they were weak and could just barely stand. Their bodies were just worn out. Whirling, spinning dances. You've heard of whirling dervishes? That was something in India where people would just spin and spin and spin. How many of you remember doing that as a kid? Spinning until you were dizzy and just you loved that feeling? And once you reach a certain age, you're like, this is not so much fun anymore, right? It's like, I don't want to walk into the wall or trip and fall. It hurts too much. That was part of their religious experience. They would have strong incense to just wipe out anything else around them. 
and other means that they were trying to experience a semi-conscious feeling. They were trying to reach this oneness or this connection with a god or goddess, and it involved their feelings. So these former pagans are now part of the Corinthian church, and they heard about the Holy Spirit's power. They heard that it was like the wind, and they were confused by their old beliefs. And many of them were now adapting these old practices, trying to feel the Holy Spirit in them, as though he were just another God to appease. This emotional high, unfortunately, is what many followers of Jesus today are taught is the evidence of God's blessing, or even salvation. People believe that coming to church is so that they can feel something, so that they feel closer to God. And whether it's through music or song or other means, they're looking for this kind of out-of-conscious experience to connect with God. Even though songs of worship may be focused on Jesus, there's a lot of them are self-focused. It's about how I feel, and it's just getting me to just think more about that. And sometimes a charismatic or a Pentecostal church would teach that speaking in an unknown babbling tongue, where there, no one is actually understanding that, is evidence that a person is saved. First of all, it's a wrong understanding. We're going to talk a little bit more of the gift of tongues, because that means a language. And secondly, this passage teaches us that all believers are given a wide variety of gifts. Nowhere does it say every believer has this one same gift, and that's the evidence that you're a believer. Paul says not everyone has these more public sign gifts. He's talking to the early church, and he says desire the higher gifts, the ones that are more encouraging the ones that are serving other people. Those are the gifts I want you to focus on. So many of the same types of ecstatic ancient pagan practices show up in some charismatic churches today. People jumping, people dancing, people babbling made-up words, laughing, spinning around, running around. You may have seen videos of this, and it's sad because we don't want to laugh at what people are doing. They're being led to think that they need emotion, they need to feel something strange to know that God's presence is actually there. And this is not biblical worship. Paul's making it so clear that these emotional, physical actions are not from the Holy Spirit. They don't build up or serve other people. They're just about this one individual feeling something for themselves. They were wrong in Corinth, and they don't have a place in the church today. So I have three points, and I'm going to try and make them all. The first one is, what's the source of the gifts? In your bulletin, for those of you that are new, there's an outline, and if you like to fill in blanks, there's a couple blanks there. You can take some notes so you can talk about this and discuss it later. But in James chapter 1, 16 and 17, James, the brother of Christ, said, Do not be deceived. My brothers, my beloved brothers, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. All gifts come from God. Paul wanted them to know the truth and not accept Satan's attempt to copy God's good gifts. 
We believe God's word and we trust him because he's the source of all truth and he demonstrates his faithfulness. Our faith is based on Jesus Christ, not on our feelings. What's commonly said today of following your heart with its ups and downs is what gets so many people into deep trouble because you may feel good one day and you feel terrible another day, but God is the same. He is faithful. And he says, I will walk through those valleys with you, and I'm also going to be there when life is going well and you're enjoying things. I'm not away from you because you feel bad, and I'm not with you because you feel good. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. It's the truth of who God is. He is the solid rock on which we stand. So Paul gives some tests, briefly, of spiritual gifts. In verse 3, he says, Anyone who says Jesus is accursed is not speaking from God. This is not the Holy Spirit in someone. Our primary test of whether a religion is true or false is based on who do they say Jesus is. And we would call anything that, is, that does not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the Son of God, we would say that is a cult, it's a false religion. The early Gnostics, who thought they could know everything, said Jesus could not possibly be human because all flesh is sinful. And that's why they whipped their flesh, they beat themselves, and they thought that if they did that, they would get rid of the sin in themselves. They believed that Jesus was from God, but he wasn't human at the same time. The Jehovah's Witness have a brand new building up the street here. They say on their own website, we do not worship Jesus as we do not believe that he is almighty God. You may hear their name and think, oh, Jehovah, that's the name in the Old Testament. Yes, that's what they're saying. They believe in that God, but they don't believe that Jesus is almighty God. The Mormon church, which calls itself the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, say, having faith in Jesus Christ and following teaching, his teachings, is the only way to find lasting happiness. Not salvation, happiness. If you like what Jesus had to say, follow him. And they have all kinds of great movies and programs, and we see them on TV, we see them in the movies and think, oh, they're talking about Jesus. They must be like us. They say Jesus is not God. He is just one of his many sons. They believe that the Bible needed to be added to. And they believe that the church over the last 2,000 years was corrupted, and Joseph Smith needed to write his own book that supersedes the Bible. So I don't want you to spend your time studying that unless somebody asks a question, but they don't believe Jesus is the one Son of God, the way to be saved. I'm not saying this to be mean to any of those people, because just like the people in Corinth, they were being led to believe something that was not true. They have just enough Bible words in these different false religions to make people think, oh, that sounds like what I heard in Sunday school, and people get led into the wrong way. By denying Jesus' deity, that he is God, these groups are cursing Jesus. And then it says only a person who is being led or speaking through the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is Lord. Only a person who's been convicted of their sins by the Holy Spirit 
who proclaims Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came to save us, who ascribes to Jesus that he is the Lord to be honored, to be glorified, to be obeyed, that person is speaking because they have the Holy Spirit in them. Otherwise, you could just say the words, Jesus is Lord, but not mean it. So Paul is saying that is a true believer, someone who has been changed by God. John MacArthur, out on the left coast, had this to say about spiritual gifts. True spiritual gifts are given by God to strengthen and manifest oneness, harmony, and power. Satan's counterfeit gifts are meant to divide, disrupt, and weaken. God's gifts build up, Satan's tear down. Verses 4 to 6 tell us that there are a variety of gifts, lots of different kinds, and there are some different categories. But they all come from the same spirit. The gifts are not talents and abilities, so don't get confused. If you have a beautiful singing voice, that's not a spiritual gift. You can use it to glorify God. You can use it to worship in the church. Being fast is not a spiritual gift. Knowing how to fix engines is not a spiritual gift. You may have learned that from someone. You may have a mind that thinks that way. I don't. But that's not a spiritual gift. Baking is close, because if you're really good enough, it's not a spiritual gift either. Don't bake me things because, you know, my numbers are not good, so I can't have baked stuff. All of those things are learned. They can be developed, but spiritual gifts are supernaturally given. They're by the Holy Spirit, and they're in two main categories. First Peter 4.11, he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles or messages from God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the two big categories are speaking gifts and serving gifts. And Peter says, no matter what our gifts are, we need to do everything to glorify God through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you are thinking you're using a spiritual gift and it's not glorifying God, it's just promoting yourself, you're not using it properly. There's several categories, um, as I said, those two big ones, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And Paul also mentions activities. That's the stuff that you're actually doing to serve other people. So you can jot this down, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. That's where we are today. And also in verse 28. And then Romans 12, 6 to 8, and then 1 Peter 4, 11. Those are places where spiritual gifts are listed. Spiritual gifts are meant to serve. The Lord Jesus Christ said, For even the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So there are a variety of gifts. That's the next big point. Verses 8 to 10 talk about the variety of gifts. They're different. And this is not a complete list because there's more passages, as I just mentioned. We'll talk about some of them coming up. But there are nine listed in today's passage. And Paul continues to say they all come from 
the same Holy Spirit. So I've grouped them into those categories just so you could see them, speaking gifts and serving gifts. The first one is the utterance of wisdom. Utterance means to say something out loud. I could have all the wisdom in the world, which I don't, but if I did and I didn't tell anybody, I wouldn't be using this spiritual gift. This is a gift meant to serve other people by having wisdom. In verse, in, sorry, in chapter 2, Paul had talked about spiritual wisdom that comes from God. It's not street smarts. It's not success in worldly ventures. If you think of somebody who's wise and always knows just what to do, it may be something because of the knowledge they've gathered. But someone who can take biblical knowledge and rightly apply it to life, a life that pleases God, is someone who has spiritual wisdom. And it's the utterance, it's speaking it, it's sharing with, it, with other people. So in the church, this might look like someone who listens to your problems or who looks at a situation and then shares solid biblical principles that are going to lead to righteous actions, lead to God being glorified. This is what we should do in this situation because this is what God's word says. Taking that and applying it, that's wisdom. Or it might be a preacher or a teacher who is clearly speaking God's word in a way that's understandable, in a way that's applicable to your life. If you listen to God's word on a Sunday morning, you may think, wow, that was speaking right to me. And that's because the Holy Spirit uses his word to encourage us, things that we need to change in our lives, things we need to stop doing or maybe start doing. That's God's word being applied, and that's wisdom. Next is the utterance of knowledge. Spiritual knowledge is not just collecting trivia or knowing a lot of things about the Bible, being able to pronounce all of the Greek and Hebrew words, being able to find a book of the Bible quickly, faster than anybody else. Remember the sword drills? We're not going to have one today, but that's not spiritual knowledge. That's just getting through your Bible quickly. It's good to have, but it's not what he's talking about. In verse, or I'm sorry, in chapter 8, we already talked about this. Paul warned about knowledge that puffs up, knowledge that makes you proud and you're kind of showing off. That's not what he's talking about. This is a spiritual knowledge and understanding of the meaning of Scripture. It's closely related, as far as I can see, to spiritual wisdom. It has to do with rightly interpreting God's Word and then being able to share it with others, being able to teach it, to share it. So in the early church, the apostles were also given secret knowledge. And that was words directly from God that they spoke to the church, that they wrote to the church, that they preached to people, in, like in letters like this. As I said before, this is God's word. And it wasn't just Paul's thoughts. He didn't hear their problems and say, oh, I know what to do. I remember that happened to my Aunt Martha. And this is what she did when she had that problem. He's giving them God's wisdom, and he's telling them, this is what you need to do. And that type of knowledge has passed. New information from God is no longer with us because he gave it all to us. He said, this is sufficient. This is complete. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. You have it. And that leads us into the next one, which is prophecy. There's two different positions, two different understandings, and I'm going to try to explain both of them to you, and then I'll let you know which one I 
lean towards. You can maybe tell as I'm talking, but the Greek word propheteia means the ability to deliver representative declarations of the mind, will, or knowledge of God. Listen to that again. The ability to deliver representative declarations of the mind, will, or knowledge of God. If I read God's word, am I sharing with you God's mind, will, and knowledge? Yes? Can you agree with that? If I read a passage of scripture, I'm telling you what God thinks, what he wants, and who he is, right? Does that take spiritual discernment for me to read the words? I don't think so. I think the words are here already. God gave them to Paul, and now he's given them to us. So I don't think this is new information. In the Old Testament, the word prophecy was almost exclusively applied to the words spoken by someone called a prophet. And they usually started their speech with, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God has to say to you. I'm the mouthpiece. Here's what God's message is. And those messages were not always about the future. That's what we often think prophecy is just something that's going to happen, but often it was a call to repentance. Israel needed to hear that over and over and over again. Listen, people, you have strayed from your God. If you come back, he will love you. He will continue to care for you. But come back. We need to hear that message of repentance also. But it's not a special wisdom that it would take for someone to say, if you're sinning, you should stop. Right? We know that. But the prophets were sent at times where the whole nation needed to come back to God. And then God did give them knowledge of the future. And that was spiritual wisdom that they could say, this is what's going to happen when you don't follow God. If you keep walking down this path, you're going to be invaded by this particular country. They're going to capture your children and your women, and you're going to be decimated. Return to God. Repent now. And then they wouldn't, and those things happened. And someone could say, oh, that person truly was a prophet. What they said happened. That's what prophecy looked like through the Old Testament. The New Testament usage does include some future events. The whole book of Revelation is mostly prophecy, telling us what's going to happen related to the end times and when Jesus comes back to bring believers back in the rapture. But the majority of that prophecy in the early church was like this passage, where it's listed as a spiritual gift. It's speaking forth, it's proclaiming God's word. And the apostles were the only one, ones who wrote it down. They were the ones who gave us the words. But as they spoke, as they preached in services, Paul said, don't forget what I told you before. He was prophesying to them. He was giving them God's word previously, like last week with the instructions about communion. Remember what I told you before? Let me remind you of that. God was speaking through his apostles, through this spiritual gift. Some Bible scholars like John MacArthur, I just mentioned him before, say that proclaiming God's word, this prophecy is still happening today, but it is now effectively speaking the already written word of God, and it doesn't include new revelation. So where do I lean in this debate? It's just my opinion. 
But I believe that this gift of prophecy that Paul is describing, describing was proclaiming God's word, directly speaking for God, and it was in keeping with the Old Testament understanding. The apostles and others in the church were able to speak on God's behalf through the Holy Spirit. And as they wrote to the churches, they were proclaiming God's word. Those teachings became our Bible. Listen to how Peter describes this. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, like a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying that when we prophesy, we're speaking God's word. And we are not just sharing something that we want to say. It's not from our own will or our own ideas. It's speaking as we were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we understand the inspiration of Scripture. And that's why I struggle with the idea that I'm prophesying when I read God's word to you because I'm not sharing anything new. The Holy Spirit's not telling me specifically what to say. It's not God's new words. So that's my understanding of it. And you can disagree with me. That's okay. The preaching, gifts, teaching, wisdom, knowledge, all of these encompass interpretation and proclamation, effectively applying God's word that's already been written. So that's why I just don't see this as a gift that's still being used today. Because when I preach and teach, I don't see that as the same as prophecy. Why would you have the same gift? So anyway, just my opinion. The next one is various kinds of languages. And the big confusion there is in the word that is used. The word tongue is glossa in Greek. And in plural, it's glossen. It should be translated as languages. I'm going to talk more about this in chapter 14, but recognize Paul is not commanding the use of these gifts. He's just saying this is the purpose of the gifts and you're having a problem with them in Corinth. So this was a sign gift. It was something that validated the power of the gospel. It helped share it with a wider range of people. When the apostles were gone, gifts like this ceased like the others. The apostles didn't have Google Translate on their phones. So when they wanted to share something, they couldn't say, tell me how to say tongue. And then they would see five different words and they could share that with people. Or they didn't have a bank of translators. If you've ever seen the United Nations, when someone is speaking, there's a whole bunch of people and they've got little earbuds, right? And they're hearing whoever's speaking from Africa or South America and everybody gets to hear it in their own language. That's what the Holy Spirit did when the church first had the Holy Spirit come. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the utterance, gave them the words to say. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each of them was hearing in his own language. They were hearing the words spoken and supernaturally, they could understand it. And that's not, unfortunately, what charismatic churches today would do. 
they're speaking in an unknown, non-existent language, and then someone says, this is what it means. The interpretation of languages was that if you're in the gathering of the church and someone is speaking in this unknown language, say it was German. Does anybody speak German well enough to interpret it? Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Nine? Nine? Okay. That's just from reading war, war books. Anyway, if I was speaking in German and there were people from Germany in the, in the service, they could understand it. That was great. But if there was everybody else was speaking English, then someone with the gift of translation could stand up and say, this is what Mark just said. And he would speak it in their language so they would know what was going on. It was for everyone to understand. It was for the benefit, the good of everyone, the common good. So the, these gifts were not for me to feel like I'm connected with God and this is just something I do alone. It was meant for sharing the gospel with people in a wide range. The next four gifts are related and they are the serving gifts. Faith, first of all. This isn't saving faith or the ability to believe the gospel. Otherwise, every believer would have this gift. And Paul said there's a variety of gifts and a variety of applications. Different people have different gifts, and this is how you're going to use them. This is a spirit-given ability to trust God, even in overwhelming, seemingly impossible circumstances. When Paul was in the raging storm on his way to Rome in Acts 27, he told those on board the ship, don't worry, you don't have to be afraid. They were throwing everything overboard. They were ready for the ship to just break apart and sink into the sea. And he said, the ship is not going to sink. You're all going to make it to shore because I need to stand before Caesar. And I believe God is going to make this happen. Your ship is secure. Don't worry. That great faith, that trust in God wasn't just to make Paul feel better, it was to give hope and courage to the people around him. It was for the common good. The next one is healing. You may have seen or heard about someone who was healed from an illness. The doctors were amazed that when this person came back, there was nothing showing up on the MRI. There was a tumor here and now it's gone. God can still do that. But only Jesus only the seven disciples that he sent out and then the apostles had the ability to miraculously heal someone with a spoken word or their touch. These healings were because of God's compassion for the hurting, but they were also to bring glory to Jesus Christ, to fulfill the prophecies that when the Messiah came, he would come with healing. He would heal people, and this was proof that he really was the Messiah. As the apostles walked into a new city, and people didn't know them. If they healed several people, all of a sudden a crowd is going to show up and people are going to say, you must be here from God. What do you have to say? We want to listen to you. They didn't heal everyone. They healed the people God told them to. Timothy had some stomach trouble. And in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says, have some wine for your stomach problems. This will make you feel better. Could Paul have spoken a word from a distance and healed him? Of course he could. And then there's Paul's thorn in the flesh that he prayed, God, would you take this away from me, but not my will, yours, right? Just like Jesus. I don't like this thing, but 
I might have to live with it. If they had the ability to just heal indiscriminately and do anything they wanted, they would have just healed themselves and healed everybody around them. But it was a gift for the purpose of showing God's power for people to listen to the message, to authenticate that this person was speaking on the behalf of God. The historical writings of the early church don't include any of these sign gifts. They say, yes, they were happening there in the time of the apostles, but then in the early church beyond that, they don't talk about any healings, any of these sign gifts continuing to happen. Other early writers who were not part of the church necessarily, Justin Martyr, Origen, Augustine, who was a church father, said that the sign gifts were something that happened only in the earliest days of the church, in the days of the apostles. Working of miracles is another temporary sign gift. And we talked about this at men's breakfast yesterday. What's a miracle, guys? One of you that was there? The impossible. Something that could not happen, like me rising from the floor and floating, right? That couldn't happen. Could a cardinal show up on my bird feeder and make me think about my mom? Yeah, but that's not a miracle from God. That's me remembering how much my mom liked cardinals, and that's just a nice memory. People often say this was a miracle, like getting a parking space. I got the last space, and it was right by the door, and it's raining. It's a miracle. It's not. It's just something nice that God did for you, or maybe you just had enough patience to drive around the lot until that space opened. A miracle is an act of God contrary to the normal workings of the laws of nature. Jesus turned water into wine. He changed physical elements. He walked on water. He disappeared from a crowd when they wanted to make him king. These were miracles that went against physical nature. And not only did they prove that he was the creator, but they proved that he was there speaking from God, because who else could do anything like that? And as we see in the Old Testament, uh, when Moses went to Pharaoh with miracles, the conjurers were able to do some tricks that looked like those miracles, but they were just pulling a rabbit out of their hats. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. This was how you knew someone was a true apostle. But just before this, in verse 10, Paul says, I'm content with weakness, with insults, with persecutions and calamities, because in my weakness, I'm strong in Jesus Christ. When these things happen to me, I fully trust in him. I rely on him, and my faith is stronger. So if Paul could do anything at any time, if he could have avoided all the hardships, all the problems in life. He could have just zapped himself out of prison. He could have made the ship just fly to the port. He could have done all of those things, but he only did miracles when God told him to because someone needed encouragement to listen to the message, to believe that he was authentic. The next one is distinguishing between spirits. This spiritual gift means the discernment, the ability to judge or separate what is spiritually genuine and what is spiritually false. In John 8, Jesus said, the devil has no truth in him. When he speaks, he lies. 
because he's speaking out of his own character. He is a liar and he is the father of lies. Satan has been twisting God's word. He's been counterfeiting his goodness throughout history. In 1 John 4, 1, John wrote, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. The New Testament is full of warnings to watch out for false teachers, people who look like another sheep in the flock, who look like someone that you would trust, but then they're actually ravenous wolves. They're preaching and teaching things that are not true. They're causing division. They're separating the church. They are ruining your faith. So when Christianity is being persecuted, like in the Middle East or in communist countries, counterfeit teachers are usually pretty scarce because the cost of calling yourself a Christian there means your life. You're imprisoned and you're often just executed because you would dare talk about Jesus. But in our nation, at our time, there are all kinds of people who would very easily can claim to be speaking biblical truth. People who call themselves preachers, evangelists, authors who write lots and lots of books, people who are counselors. Because it's easy to say this is godly, but actually they're including worldly thinking. They're including demands for health and prosperity that true, truly show their colors. What are they really in it for? They want an empire. If they ask you to send money at the end of the service, don't send it. If they ask you because you want to get a prayer cloth, don't send your money in. Why do you give to your local church and we only ask our members to do that? You do it so we can put the lights on, so that we can pay for hymnals and Bibles in the pews, so that we can carry on the work of the church, so we can support missionaries. It's not building any kind of an empire. It's not me with a diamond-covered toilet seat in my house. Don't listen to people who are asking for your money. It's about them. It's about their personal gain. So this spiritual gift is discerning that, to meet someone, to listen to them, and see what kind of spirit is in them. Is it God's Holy Spirit, or is it a spirit of pride or wealth or prosperity or something else? It's not about seeing ghosts. So watching those TV shows where they have the black and white cameras and they're looking for spirits, those people are not using a spiritual gift of finding spirits. Even if you like Ghostbusters, it's not true. It's recognizing that someone is not filled by the true spirit. When a believer uses the gifts of the spirit, you're going to see them used for the common good. You're going to see people encouraged and built up. You're going to see the church growing as a result of that. And people who are not doing that are dangerous because their teachings are not in line with God's word. Well, we are apparently going to hear about the purpose of the gifts and our closing next week because our time is fleeting. So I hope you took notes. I hope you bring them back again. Mark is going to come up and we're going to sing a great song in closing. I hope that if you're a guest with us for this first time, you'll stop at the Welcome Center. But there was just too much here and too many things to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it. Thank you that as we read and interpret these things, we can see that 
The gifts that you've given us are good. The gifts that come from you are meant to be used not only to glorify your son, but for the common good of the church family, to build up each other, to encourage each other, to help each other live a life that follows you. And Lord, I pray that in everything we say and do in this coming week, your son, Jesus Christ, would be honored and glorified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.